For the past decade, as we've formed our year-ahead investment outlooks, we've been able to agree that the business cycle will keep going, that the bull market will keep running, and that's been true year after year. And in the short term, this looks like it will continue to be the case. The global economy is still growing, interest rate cuts globally have provided a helping hand, and in the U.S., consumers are still going strong. But the range of outcomes is growing and unusually wide. Longer-term structural dynamics are brimming beneath the surface, threatening to upend the global economy, markets, and society at large. The question becomes, are markets reaching their limits? On this episode of The Bid, we'll try to answer this question with thought leaders behind the scenes at the BlackRock Investment Institute's Investment Forum. In the first of a two-part series, we'll hear from Philip Hildebrand, Vice Chairman of BlackRock, Tom Donilon, Chairman of BII and former U.S. National Security Advisor, Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing, and Teresa O'Flynn, Global Head of Sustainable Investing Strategy for BlackRock Alternatives. We'll talk about what limits we see challenging markets in the year ahead, and home in on the path forward for geopolitics and sustainability. I'm your host, Katherine Kress. We hope you enjoy. At a recent investment forum in New York, more than 100 portfolio managers and strategists came together to hash out our outlook for markets in 2020. One thing quickly became clear from discussions. Our global economic and geopolitical environment is hitting its limit. So the way we framed this discussion over the last two days was really to say, on the one hand, we have a cycle that continues to be in place. It gets extended, again supported by further monetary policy easing. And at the same time, longer term, we're seeing limits across four dimensions, which was really the theme of the whole two days. That's Philip Hildebrand, BlackRock's vice chairman. Philip notes the tension we're facing. On one hand, easy monetary policy, like recent cuts in interest rates in the U.S., have supported economic growth. But on the other, we see limits that threaten the economic cycle. So what are these limits? I sat down with Philip and Tom Donilon, chairman of BII and former U.S. National Security Advisor, to find out. The first one was in terms of inequality. Clearly, we're getting to a point where the extreme levels of inequality are putting entire political systems, are putting the economy under stress. Second one is globalization. That it looks, when you look at the data on a number of uh, dimensions, it looks like we're reaching limits as to how far we can take globalization. Or, in fact, more and more the data suggests we're seeing some form, some degree of deglobalization. The third one is monetary policy, interest rates. We're hitting rock bottom in many ways in terms of interest rates and, and reaching limits as to what else monetary policy can do going forward. And the fourth one, which is in many ways an overarching theme, is around sustainability. Increasingly, the data shows us that we are pushing the system to the limit when it comes to sustainability, whether it's climate change, whether it's other environmental factors here. It's beginning to show up as physical risk. It's beginning to morph into relative prices. It's beginning to have an impact on the economy and on markets. So these are four limit themes that we've identified to frame the entire discussion the last two days. 
I want to pick up on the second limit you mentioned, which is globalization. Over the course of this year, we as the BlackRock Investment Institute and our investors have been thinking a lot about geopolitics and geopolitical risk, globalization being one of the key themes that we've discussed. So Tom, turning to you, in thinking out over the next 12 months or so, what are the geopolitical risks or perhaps the one geopolitical risk that you're most worried about? Well, in general, it's our view at the BlackRock Investment Institute that the biggest threat to the ongoing cycle of Philip was describing is geopolitical conflict and in particular trade policy. And that's really been at the center of a lot of what's been going on in the markets over the last year or so. There's a trade negotiation obviously underway with China. We had the 13th round of negotiations recently in Washington and this movement towards some sort of very limited deal. But more generally, there are ongoing structural issues that need to be worked out between China and the United States on the economic front, but also on the technology front and on a number of other fronts. We've made some progress, we hope, on the trade front, but it's of a limited nature. And I think trade will continue to be at the center of the risk that we're going to be looking at going forward. So you mentioned trade and technology. What are some of the other dimensions that you're thinking about? Well, let's stop on technology for just a second. There really is a pretty robust competition underway between the United States and China with respect to technology leadership. And you've seen that in the goals that have been set forth by China. You've seen that in a number of the steps that have been taken in the United States, for example, to provide some fairness in the technology competition in the views of the United States to ensure the United States maintains an edge in some of these key technologies going forward. We're looking at much more rigorous review of investments in the United States around technology through the so-called CFIUS process. In the next couple of months, I think we'll see more rigorous export controls on technology leaving the country. We have some tension around students and researchers coming back and forth between the United States and China. So there's a robust competition underway in the technology field that's going to continue for a long time, I think. In general, Catherine, we're in a new era of U.S.-China relations. The focus has been on trade, but that's not the only or even main focus over the long haul. And we're going to have to develop a new set of rules of the road. The contours of the relationship as it goes forward, I think, are still being developed. If you were to look at some of our indicators measuring geopolitical risk, whether it be global trade tensions or U.S.-China competition, it's clear these are issues that markets are paying attention to. So to each of you, I'm curious what your thoughts are on some of the risks that we might not be paying enough attention to that you're worried about that perhaps markets may not be sufficiently. Well, I think the reason things have worked out pretty well in market terms, despite all these things that Tom has just mentioned, is because we've had this extraordinary underpinning of asset prices through continued and persistent monetary policy support. So I think the biggest risk, in a sense, relative to what we've now seen over the last 10 years, really, the entire post-crisis era, is if indeed we are reaching limits as to what monetary policy can do, that's, I think, an underappreciated risk because it has been, in my view, the main underpinning of the extraordinary performance of most financial asset categories, most financial securities, have performed on the whole very well over the last 10 years, supported by this nearly kind of endless, repetitive, over and over again, support from monetary policy. If indeed we are reaching limits, which is one of our concerns here around that tool, then the question becomes, what comes next? So we can either diffuse the tensions that Tom talked about, which, as he said, might be the case in some areas, but presumably not broadly, or we can find other ways to support and underpin 
markets and the economy, and that gets harder and harder as we run out of space on the monetary side. Now, there are some answers to this. Fiscal policy is one obvious answer. That's where the discussion is going. But for many reasons, that's a much harder tool to implement. And so I think, to me, that's perhaps the most underappreciated risk. What happens if we need more stimulus, given that we are reaching limits, we have reached limits, arguably, around monetary policy? So you mentioned fiscal policy was one potential route forward. Do you think that's likely, or does this still remain very uncertain? Well, I think at the margin, if we step away from the U.S. for a second, in Europe there is a renewed debate around this, which is not surprising given that we have reached a limit there, certainly. Pervasive negative rates already in Europe, certainly. So there is a change in tone. There is a change in even official statements. But it is still pretty marginal, and it's going to be hard to activate fiscal policy in the same coordinated, large-scale sense that we've been able to activate monetary policy. It's certainly not a full, let alone a perfect substitute to what monetary policy has been. So I think it has to be a combination of diffusing the conflicts, diffusing the sources of tension, fiscal policy where appropriate and where possible, and continued focus on structural reforms to make economies more competitive fundamentally. I think those are the three sort of elements to how we deal with this next phase. And Tom, turning to you, what risks are you most worried about that perhaps markets might not be paying attention to? Well, I think it flows from what Philip has said. You know, one of the biggest trends we've seen in the world has been the revival of great power competition. And we talked about that earlier Mm -hmm. with respect to trade and technology competition between the United States and China. But another one of the big themes and big trends in the world the last few years has been really dissatisfaction in the democracies. We've seen populist moves, particularly in the Western democracies across the globe, that put pressure on the ability of governments to perform. And we've seen of late a large number of protests in the world. And that flows from a lot of things, some of the things that Philip talked about, inequality, the perceived inability of government to be responsive, mm-hmm. and other individual factors. So those are important factors. And I think that one of the unappreciated risks is if governments can't become more responsive to these trends, what happens in the next downturn? We'll have a risk in terms of the response that Philip talked about in terms of the limits of what central banks can do. But I think it's a bigger political risk of what do these dynamics look like in a downturn if they are this dynamic and is this level of dissatisfaction in an economy that's not in a downturn. Right. We've talked about how this kind of rising populist or anti-establishment wave has taken place amid incredible economic growth or economic strength. And so the question indeed is what happens in the downturn if many of these concerns or anti-establishment sentiment is in fact driven in some way by economic anxiety. I think one of the things we should not forget, it's true, of course, that the overall climate has been a very positive one. But when you look at income distributions, when you look at even broad segments of the middle class, in many ways, large sections of the populations all over the world have not really benefited from this period, certainly in terms of real wages. This experience of a good decade, in many ways, in terms of just, if you look at headline growth numbers and GDP and markets, of course, has not translated down into the lives of of many ordinary people, which is exactly why I think we're seeing this extraordinary frustration around ultimately an inequality issue which has been exacerbated by the crisis and sadly, to some extent at least, by the response to the crisis over the last 10 years. 
overall, as we think about some of these risks that markets may or may not be paying attention to, how do you think investors should actually be building some of these insights and how should they be thinking about geopolitics as they invest and as they manage their portfolios? I think we have to recognize that we are still in a world where consumption has been very strong, the cycle continues, and it's underpinned by very supportive financial conditions. For those reasons, I think near-term recession is very unlikely. I suspect we will continue to see significant underpinning of financial markets. And so the challenge really for investors is to think about these short-term constructive dynamics and how do they match up with some of the longer-term limits that we've talked about and at what point do the sort of two time horizons collide. That's a very difficult thing to do for investors. I think they have no choice but to focus on quality investments, trying to focus on portfolio construction that leads you to a resilient portfolio so that you can partake in this extended cycle while being aware that some of these longer-term trends, if left unaddressed, could become real challenges. But it's a very hard one because you're dealing with almost kind of two time horizons here. You know, in general, Catherine, I think, you know, if you're an investor and you look at the list of geopolitical issues in the world, it's a very daunting list. We could spend a lot of time here making a list of situations that if they went to worst-case scenarios in every case could be paralyzing for an investor to look at yeah. that. So I think the important thing to understand is that each of these has to be looked at individually. Uh, and you do kind of a deep analysis as to which of these are likely to move to less positive-case scenarios and what the impact is going to be. Every geopolitical situation in the world that may go to a worst-case scenario is not going to have a market impact. So it's two things. It's doing the deep kind of work on each of these to understand what the trajectory might be. And then the second piece is looking carefully at what the actual market impact would be under various scenarios. Tom mentioned two ways to think about incorporating geopolitical risk in portfolios. Understanding the trajectory and likelihood of individual risks— and analyzing the impact those risks might have on global markets. As the economic backdrop weakens, this analysis becomes all the more important. Geopolitical shocks can have a bigger impact when markets are vulnerable. Geopolitics and globalization is just one of the limits we're keeping our eye on. Philip outlined three other long-term issues he's worried about, inequality, monetary policy, and sustainability. To get a better sense of this last issue, I sat down with Brian Deese, Global Head of Sustainable Investing, and Teresa O'Flynn, Global Head of Sustainable Investing Strategy for BlackRock Alternatives, to talk about the future of sustainability and what makes right now a critical moment to incorporate sustainable insights into our investment views. But first, a level set. What exactly do we mean by sustainable investing? So it's the right question to start with because this is a space that there's a lot of terms, there's a lot of confusion. So we start with a very simple definition, which is sustainable investing is combining the best of traditional investing approaches with insights, ideas, data on sustainability-related issues in order to improve long-term outcomes. So there's a couple things that are important about that definition. First, this is about delivering on our fiduciary obligation. This is about finding ways to integrate sustainability consistent with driving long-term financial performance. So there's been a long tension to say, do you have to trade off financial value for your values? Our objective is to try to find ways to actually enhance traditional investing approaches 
The second is that it drives you toward an understanding of how can you actually measure and integrate those sustainability-related issues. And that's where we hear a lot about ESG, environmental, social governance. That basically characterizes a whole set of issues that might be relevant in terms of how a company or an asset is performing across time. And we're seeing across the world in all sorts of ways, whether it's climate change or social movements or social media or cultural changes, that these issues that have been traditionally thought of as non-financial are increasingly central to how companies or assets are going to perform over the long term. You mentioned environmental social governance. We hear about environmental climate related issues all the time. What are some examples of some of the social and governance issues that you're thinking about? Sure. So when you hear social, it's about how a company manages its internal stakeholders. So think its employees. So human capital. Are you creating an inclusive workforce? We know that workforces where people feel more empowered, there's more diversity. Actually, there's better decision-making. They generate better profitability over the long term. And they're also less subject to the kind of idiosyncratic crises that we've seen when you mismanage your human capital and all of a sudden you can lose your social license to operate. Your employees go out in the street and protest you. That's the kind of thing you think about when we think about the S bucket. Mm -hmm. G is actually, in some ways, the most well understood. Basic governance principles, there's a long and established link between good governance and financial performance. But in the world we operate in, we try to look specifically at governance-related issues on new and emerging issues in this space. So for example, what's your governance of your data security and privacy? Do you have a governance structure to manage risks associated with cyber attacks? Those are the types of things that are more difficult to measure, newer in some ways, but test to the governance of a company and are the kinds of things we want to be able to measure, we want to be able to integrate. Brian, one of the themes that we've been exploring at the forum this week is sustainability at the limit. How do you view this theme and what are some of the underpinnings or core issues that you're thinking about? I think this concept of the limit is really fascinating when you come to sustainability because there's sort of two lenses. One is there's a set of things that are changing in the world that may force a set of limits. So, you know, climate change is a good example, right? We've had multiple once in a 500-year weather events in the last couple of years. So at some point, the impact of rate rising global average temperatures is going to force a set of physical limits, whether that be extreme flooding in the middle of this country, the wildfires we've seen out west, or the frequency and severity of hurricanes. And there are limits associated with that that we need to understand as investors, and we need to make sure that we're factoring in. There's another, which is societal, which is this increasing societal expectation and pressure is going to force limits. It's going to force limits on how companies are allowed to operate, when companies lose their social license to operate. And so as investors, we also have to understand and anticipate where those trends start to go from interesting, important to actually changing or putting pressure on business models, including the financial sector. I definitely would like to pick up the point that Brian mentioned around physical limits. And this is particularly important when we're investing in infrastructure and real estate in local economies. Today, I don't think the market is quite there in terms of thinking about how climate change is affecting vulnerable properties or infrastructure. And this is a particularly important topic because I think the science around how our weather patterns are changing, the facts are undeniable. So ultimately, I think in order to fulfill our fiduciary responsibilities, we need to be factoring these considerations in when we're deploying our clients' capital. What comes next for sustainable investing? After recognizing some of the key issues, starting to integrate them, what are you working on or starting to think about moving forward? 
I think when it comes to sustainable investing, where the market is going, it's simply going to be mainstream investing. In years to come, I don't even think we'll talk about sustainable investing as being a thing. Because I think increasingly people are recognizing that it's at the core of sound risk management. It's particularly true for us in private markets where we're investing for a 10, 15, 20 year horizon. And thinking about how sustainability trends will affect your cash flows is quite simply wise investing. To follow up on that, you mentioned that the next thing is that we won't even have to think about it. It'll become traditional investing. Do you see any kind of regional differences in that, or do you expect that outcome globally? I think as we stand here today, we're definitely seeing regional differences. The European market is, I would say, more advanced in terms of how it thinks about sustainable investing, but other regions are catching up. More and more of our conversations with clients outside of Europe increasingly feature sustainable investing as well. Well, I like Teresa's answer because it's basically she wants to put us out of business. Uh, <laughs> as I think forward, the two big areas, that, the next big issues to me are, one, sustainable benchmarks. So previously, we didn't have enough data, enough conviction to actually say you can make core allocations in a portfolio and be aware or actually improve the sustainability attributes of those core allocations. We've come a long distance on that. And when you are able to do that, you can open up the aperture of how sustainability gets incorporated, not just in the decision to allocate to a particular fund, but in your original asset allocation portfolio construction. The second is that the revolution in data that has come to the economy writ large and to the financial services industry is coming to sustainable investing in a big way. And so the proliferation of data, not just about what a company is saying to the market. So if a company has a sustainability report or otherwise, but what the market is saying about a company. We talked about human capital. Increasingly, the best ways to understand whether a company is effectively managing its human capital are not what a company is saying, but what its employees are saying through social media or otherwise. Harnessing that type of information, applying it in increasingly sophisticated ways, that's a big next opportunity in the sustainable space. Those are both really exciting answers. Shifting into what worries you as you think about kind of the future outlook, what keeps you up at night when you think about sustainable investing and how it's going to evolve moving yeah. forward? I think in terms of some of the regulatory interventions that we're seeing in the marketplace at the moment, and again, I go back to Europe, there's a tremendous focus on financial regulation around the space and ultimately with a very good objective to protect the end investor from greenwashing, defining what we mean by ESG integration. And ultimately, I believe we're moving to a place in Europe where it's going to be a legal requirement. That's all good. We welcome that. I think what's missing, though, is more coordinated regulatory intervention that's focused on what sustainability means for the real economy. So what do I mean by that? In the real economy, we're talking about infrastructure projects, we're talking about real estate. If sustainability considerations are not factored in upfront when projects are being planned and developed, often by the time we get involved as a source of capital that often gets involved at the construction or operating phase, it's too late for us to try and influence the outcome. And this is where I think if we take a step back and see what Europe did in a renewable energy context back in 2009, it was pretty fundamental. We set long-term 2020 targets requiring the EU to have 20% renewable energy in the mix by 2020. We're getting close to that. But what that very specific and deliberate regulatory initiative did was it, it spurred 
a renewable energy market, initially on the back of subsidies in order to get wind and solar built, but now we're at a stage where free market forces have taken over. So when I think about sustainability more broadly and the need to think about responsible resource consumption, the need to think about with all this wind and solar getting built around the world, how we modernize our power grids, how we think about encouraging innovation around broader climate infrastructure. I think we need regulatory signals that can encourage the market to respond so that ultimately we as financial investors can invest in more and exciting sustainable investing opportunities. And Brian, anything you're worried about? How long do you have? (laughs) At core, very similar to Teresa, I think as exciting and as fast moving as this space is, my biggest concern is that collectively we're not moving fast enough to solve these big global challenges, whether it's inequality within and between countries or it's climate change. And fundamentally, in order to accelerate progress, you're going to need a combination of increasing innovation in the financial sector, but also long-term price signals. The increasing uncertainty and lack of effective ability to govern around really core issues, societal issues like these, and send those long-term price signals is a challenge to the kind of speed that we're going to need if we're going to get in front of these issues. So I am both optimistic about the role that finance can play in helping being a catalyst for positive change, but the speed at which that happens keeps me up at night because it's going to require this combination of public policy and private sector innovation working together if we're actually going to get ahead of some of these big forces. As Brian and Teresa mentioned, sustainability is at its limit, both from a physical and societal standpoint. But as Philip and Tom discussed, our world is up against a number of other limits. Inequality is rising across the globe, contributing to populism and anti-establishment sentiment, This rising inequality, coupled with great power competition and protectionism among countries, means decades of globalization may be coming to an end. This is happening as policymakers, central banks specifically, have exhausted their options for dealing with the next downturn. With these limits in mind, how can we prepare to invest for the year ahead? On our next episode, we'll continue our conversation from the Investment Forum and explore the path forward for markets. Thanks for joining us today on The Bid. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, Registered Office, 
12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N2DL. Telephone plus 44020-7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.